Welcome to the sermon podcast of Redemption Church. The following sermon is by pastoral resident Ian Mulraney. All right. So tonight for our scripture reading, we're going to be looking at Romans 1, 18 to uh, chapter 2, verse 11. And if you weren't already aware of this, this is one of the six passages in the Bible that references homosexuality. And so obviously that's one of the more divisive topics, maybe the most divisive topic in the 21st century church. And Ian has volunteered to preach for us tonight. I think he might've regretted that uh, at some point. I just want to point out, Ian also preached this fall on Revelation 13, the mark of the beast. So Ian actually gets like a lifetime achievement award for preaching on difficult passages. So like, yeah, let's give him some serious props for that. So two things I wanted to say on the front end. First of all, let's reward Ian for being brave enough to do this. Um, yeah, right. Yeah, let's let's make sure we yeah, we got his back. I know he's worked really hard on this. I know if I were preaching on this, I'd feel anxious immediately afterwards that I said the wrong thing and everybody's gonna hate me. So like, let's, let's remind him like, no, we're in this together. We're going in this together. We love you. Let's not be skeptical church members sitting back waiting for him to say the wrong thing. All right, good. Yeah, we got it. All right, cool. Secondly, um, this topic does mention homosexuality, or this passage does mention homosexuality. Um, and if you're kind of hoping that Ian's going to make a grand proclamation tonight and say absolutely right or absolutely wrong, you're going to be disappointed. And there's three reasons for that. First, this is a 25-minute sermon. This is an incredibly complicated topic. It's affected us pretty much all in some personal way. So we're not expecting to solve the issue of human sexuality in a 25-minute sermon. Secondly, this passage isn't actually about sexuality. Um, despite the fact that that tends to be the only thing we see in it, it's actually a passage about not judging each other. So we're actually going to try and be true to the passage. It's not that we can't learn things from this passage and what it says about sexuality, but we're not going to completely derail our reading of Romans on that. And lastly, top-down proclamations about things like sexuality are not actually the best way to address this subject. Um, instead, I'd encourage us all, if we want to talk about this more, have conversations with each other like graceful, open-handed conversations. Trust that the person across from you is also seeking Jesus, even if they disagree with you. And let's walk toward it, towards Jesus together around this topic. That said, we will have Bible study on Thursday. If you wanna just dive in and talk about what this passage says about sexuality, come to that on Thursday, even if we need to spend the next couple of weeks or whatever, we will do that. We will spend the time to talk about it. And if you want to talk to me or anyone else in leadership about uh, our opinion on this, please don't text me or like send me a Facebook message. Like, let's grab coffee, sit down, and again, have some open-handed, gracious conversation. Um, spend an hour talking about it. All right? Amen? So that's my little preface here. Again, we're, we're, we're going to cheer for Ian and support him and trust that God's going to lead us through this and teach us through this. And we're gonna to grow together because of this, all right? With all that said, Romans 1, 18 to chapter two, 11. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. 
since what might be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do, do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. But you, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. The word of the Lord. Amen. Hello. Hi, Zoom. So um, there's this story in the Old Testament where God performs a miracle by opening the mouth of an ass to speak his words 
it's my prayer tonight that he repeats that miracle for all of you. So, all right, let, let's pray. Dear God, we come before you knowing that you have come for us already. Thank you, God, for your gospel, for your good news that says all people are welcome in your kingdom. Thank you, God, that you take sin seriously and don't like things that go wrong and when people are evil. But thank you, God, for making a way that evil doesn't have the last word, that your love is poured out for all of us and that through the broken pieces that you put back together, broken people can become a community that reflects your kingdom. Help whatever words I say tonight just reflect and honor you. Help us to have hearts that are willing to listen and may your gospel, may your spirit come and take hold and grow fruit of righteousness, of love and your kingdom, Lord. Thank you for everybody gathered here, whether in person or online, and may you meet us and just be with us. We do all this for your glory, God. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So, yeah, this passage, you know, even if you take away the bit about homosexuality, it's a fun passage, right? We start off with the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of people. And that's just a great, you know, early morning verse to wake up to. First thing you want to read when you start your day. Um, God is wrathful and he's angry and he's coming to bring judgment, you know, just brings you a lot of peace and hope for the world, right? Um, I actually found a video that summarizes this uh, passage pretty well. So if we can bring it up. Do you think he can fly? Here he comes. Well, all right. Now it's time for me to tell you all what you've done wrong since I last saw you. And don't try and hide because I'm Jesus. I will find you. Let's start with you, Peter. You lied to your mother the other day. Andrew, you said a naughty word when you hit your finger with the hammer. James, you laughed at him when he hit his finger. Moving right along, John, you drank too much wine the other night. Not way too much, just enough to make me angry. Matthew, we fell asleep in church, didn't we? Yes, we did. And Thomas, you were slow dancing a little too close with that girlfriend of yours. Let's see, and you, I forgot your name, so you're off the hook for now. Um, hmm. Philip, I saw you smoking a cigarette behind that big rock the other day. Thaddeus, I hate to say I saw you stick up your middle finger at someone who cut you off when you were riding your camel. Benjamin, you aren't wearing your WWJD bracelet. Jacob, I don't mind you saying my name, but not after you stub your toe. And Frank, you know what you did. I just can't repeat it because I'm Jesus. All right, all you sinners, come with me. It's time to pay the piper. Man, it was only one cigarette. I heard that. Look at all these sinners. All right, listen up. Listen to me. I'm Jesus. Listen to what I have to say. 
I have done many wonderful things. I have healed many people of diseases. I have performed many miracles so that I can tell you this. You're all evil. There is no hope. That's it. Thank you. That comedic video is the gospel I think many of us have uh, heard. We might not put it in those words, but, or it's the one maybe we tend to believe and simplify that we are sinners. We do bad things. And because of that, Jesus is disappointed in you. God must hate you or not like you very much. And so I, I love that part. It cracks me up every time that I've done all these wonderful things. I've done miracles and I've come here to say, you're all sinners. You're evil. There is no hope. Like it's just so contrary to what is the good news? What, what is, what did Jesus come for? And what is Paul writing about in this passage? Right. With all that being said, you know, we know that God came to die for us, that God came because he loves us. So why is Paul, after his introduction, starting this letter to a people he's never met before, talking about God's wrath? The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. You see, the wrath of God is a scary sounding thing, but it's also a good thing. Imagine if we had a God who didn't hate the molestation of children, or if we had a God who didn't hate genocide. Think about all the ways you've been traumatized and hurt by other people in your life harsh words, evil deeds done, ways you've been neglected and abused, things that you've cried yourself to sleep over. And imagine if God didn't care about those things. Imagine if he just put a sticker on them and said, it's okay, we can get over it, you know, put a smile on. God hates that his creation has gone wrong and that things are broken and that people are broken. And we do too. We hate injustice. We hate seeing how sin takes over some people's lives and how, how organizations and systems get fractured. We hate when people do violence and commit evil and atrocities. And we, we long for peace, each and every single one of us. We long for peace and security. And so God is not some cosmic bully nitpicking and looking for each of our faults, you know, he's not, uh, he sees you when you're sleeping. He's not watching for like, what do these people do wrong that I can put them on the naughty list and condemn them to hell. He cares that he wants us to reflect his image and be living for peace and for light and for goodness. And when it doesn't, it makes God's wrath come because he wants to set it right. God is holy and in him there can be no wickedness or evil that exists. And so some things that we can tolerate 
he cannot. And so Paul starts talking about this. You know, we, we move on. He talks about God's wrath. Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. There's kind of this paradox here that God is invisible, but yet we have the ability to see him, to know his power. It's that God's law is being written on all of our hearts, all of us deep down know there's a certain way to live and a certain way of being. But what Paul goes on to say is that through rejection of the worship of God in verse 21, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. The people began to just come up with structures and live the way they want to live apart from God doing what they deem to be right. And so we get this long list of things, of sins, of ways that we can err against God. But I want you to pay attention to something here. What is the language that Paul uses? For although they knew God, they neither glorified him nor gave him thanks to him. Therefore, God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts. Because of this, God gave them over to their shameful lusts. Uh, furthermore, just as they did not think it was worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossip, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding. Paul is not saying, he's pointing across the aisle, right? He's saying they, them, those outside. And for a second, that can make us feel really good. It can make us self-righteously nod along as we hear about the slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful, as we sit holy in our pews and say, amen, they are sinners. There's a reason that Paul uses this language. If you remember Gary's sermon last week, he was talking about there's two very different uh, groups of Christians at this point, right? There's the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers, and the Jewish believers were raised with the law and had a certain way of being. And the Gentile believers were hearing about Jesus for the first time, and they were becoming Christians, but they might not have been raised with the Jewish law, and so they were carrying some of their old practices with them. And so there was a specific audience in mind as Paul puts this in his letter. When he talks about... Uh, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. Who's he talking about? He's not talking about the pious monotheistic Jewish believers, right? He's talking about the Greeks and the Romans and the barbarians who come up with all these sorts of gods like Zeus and Thor and the Egyptians who have Anubis and etc. They are the ones who make idols when Paul's talking about those who exchange 
the natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. Is he talking about the, the Jewish people with their very pure sexual ethic code? No, he's talking about the pagans who will sleep with anybody and who use temple prostitutes and those kind of things. So it's those people who are wrong. It's those people who are storing up God's wrath for themselves. The pagans, the Gentiles. Who are our those people? Who are the people that when you hear about sin, who do you think of? Atheists? People who are in the wrong political party? Gen Z, or maybe boomers, if there's any Gen Z in here. <laughs> Who are the people that you other, that their sins in ways that they are corrupt, outrage you? What makes you outraged? Like, when's the last time you've been outraged? Was it because Mr. Potato Head is now non-binary? Like, what makes you outraged? And that, those are the people, right? If we can be honest with ourselves, it's who do we hope to see goes to hell? Who are we hoping, who do we think deserves God's wrath? Well, if you're thinking about those people and how evil and atrocious they are, this might surprise you, but or maybe not. Paul actually agrees. Paul says, yes, those people are evil. They suck. They're wicked. But you're those people too. <laughs> when Romans was written, it did not have chapters or verses in it. It was just one long letter like you might receive in the mail or get an email today. To make it easier to, to uh, talk about and to study, we had some well-intentioned monks put in the chapters and verses, but this is one of the ones where I wish they had placed it somewhere else because you can preach a sermon on Romans 1 and it ends where I ended it with, they are evil, God's wrath is against them. But Paul has one thought here and it goes on in chapter 2. He switches from they to the very first word of chapter two, you. We know what they're like. What about you? You, therefore, have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else. For whenever you point, or at whatever point you judge another, you're condemning, not them. When you seek to sit in judgment over someone else to condemn them, you're not condemning them. You're condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Those people suck, but you do too. This makes us uncomfortable, I think. For two reasons. One, I think there's some people in here who, who know they suck. And maybe that's all that you think about yourself is how evil I am and how much God must hate me. 
And then the second group is people who don't like to think about that. Christ's blood has covered your sin. You don't need to worry about uh, where are you going when you die because God loves you. So I don't need to really be concerned about my own sin. Here's the paradox. For the people in the first group that think you're too sinful for God's love, you're not. God's grace is enough for you. That's the gospel. Even when you were a sinner, Jesus came to die for your sins. He loves you. He knows. But for those who lean onto the self-righteous point, who don't think about where they are, you need to be sanctified. There's repentance too. As long as we're this side of heaven, nobody is going to achieve perfection. Nobody except Christ. I mean, even Peter. Peter messed up so many times and uh, in the Gospels themselves, and he gets uh, recommissioned after Jesus' resurrection. But in Galatians, the very, the very earliest letter of the New Testament talks about how Peter still was messing up and was afraid of what people thought about him and wasn't standing up for those who were less than him. Peter kept messing up, but he still was loved by God. It's okay. We can mess up too, and God's love is still for us. So, yeah, I'll, I guess I should probably talk about the, the chairs on the screen. <laughs> um, I think we have a very simple way of thinking about sin. I want to talk about that. I think when we think about sin, it's this list that Paul has at the end of Romans 1. Like, here's all the things you messed up today. Like, you lied or you disobeyed your parents or you um, got angry, you said a curse word, like the video we saw earlier. You smoked a cigarette or too many cigarettes or whatever. But sin is bigger and deeper than that. As we go through the book of Romans, Paul is going to talk about sin, not as deeds, but as this entity, this creeping power that um, is fighting for us. And actually in sin's very first reference back in Genesis, God says that sin uh, is trying to get Cain and that he has to fight against sin. You know, it's not just simply the deeds we do, it's a stance, it's a posture that we take in our life. And what that posture is, why it's hard, it goes back to what Paul says in one twenty one. Although knowing God, neither we neither glorify him as God nor give thanks to him. Our worship of God gets all wrong. It goes back to the garden in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. We were made in God's image, made to reflect him. The chair on the left is how we were supposed to be, God is supposed to be over all things and we are made in his image. But the temptation that Adam and Eve fell for is the one all of us fall for each and every day. It's the one that we could be gods of our own lives. We could be like God. And so what we do is we dethrone God off of his throne. And we want to have mastery and complete control of our lives. And when we do that, if you are the sole provider for your own happiness, your own security, your own stability, for your financial well-being, um, 
then what happens is you're going to do the things which we know as sins. You're going to do the things on this list. It's the, the things on the list, malice and uh, slander, gossip, disobeying your parents, wrong sexual relationships, idolatry. Those things are actually symptoms of the root problem, which is that you are trying to be God when you don't have to be. There's no other way of getting at this. I go on the next slide. I have some, I'm not sure if they work. I, I was trying to think of good analogies. If these aren't helpful, just wipe them from your brain. Don't worry about them. But I was trying to think like when, when we are on the throne and we dethrone God and don't want him to be God of our lives, it's like we're a little league team where we decide that we're going to coach, even though we're part of the little league team, if we're like a five-year-old that we get rid of the coach and we want to coach ourselves, how many games do you think they're going to win? It's like if you're a baby behind the driver's seat of a vehicle, if you, um, like the problem isn't that you keep crashing into, or you keep running stop signs, you keep running the curb. Those are, those are symptoms of the problem, but the real problem is that you're a baby in the driver's seat and you don't have the muscular strength to turn the wheel. And I'm not sure how the baby hits the pedal, but this is a, this is my analogy. Okay. And if it's not helpful, don't worry about it. But, but yeah, the problem is that we're putting power in the, in the wrong hands, ours, when it should be in God's. Because what's, what are the things that God promises? What's, what's the good news? God loves you. God takes care of you. You don't have to be afraid of death because he's conquered it. You don't have to worry where your food and your clothes are coming from because he knows you need them. It's, it sounds like a bad thing to tell people in our world to submit to something, you know, because we're all about personal freedom and uh, you want to be in control and in charge. But submitting to God is actually a good thing. It means you don't have to worry about these things, which can bog you down and can make you do, make stupid decisions, right? It means you can trust that you're being taken care of. So sin is ourself over God. It's not just the moral failures, you know? And so the solution is God over us. But Paul goes on to say, you know, he's talking about in chapter two, what happens, you know, we need God, but what happens if we continue to try to look at other people and where they go wrong. Um, sometimes when we judge, it's because we love the person, right? Sometimes we might judge because we know the things that are in the Bible about what God says is right and wrong, and we want to care for people. But the problem is, Sometime, well, all the time when we judge, what we're doing is not this. We're not letting God be on the throne. You can hit the next slide. If there is a next slide. Oh, well, God's grace is big enough as yours. That's not the one I thought it was, but <laughs> maybe the next one after that. Yeah. 
So if you are looking at someone else's life and you're seeing all the ways they mess up and all the ways that they are bad and you decide to pronounce judgment on them or to tell them they don't belong in certain places or they need to change the way they're living, what you're doing is you are putting yourself on the throne over their lives. You are saying, I'm going to play the role of God in your life and tell you what needs to be done and what you should be doing. And at least to us, condemning others and, uh, <laughs> and the gospel is not condemnation, right? The gospel is the opposite of condemnation. The, the gospel is that you were on a path away from God, but he came to draw you to him. And so if we sit and we judge, Paul points out so vividly, you know, God's judgment is for everybody who does the things he talked about. And if you are going to ignore that you have done one of those things, I don't need to read through this passage because I'm sure you can just, when it was being read, heard something that you have done in Romans 1 that Paul says, everybody who does such things deserve death. If you disobeyed your parents, if you gossiped, if you are deceitful if you murdered you might not have actually killed someone but jesus says murder is getting ang so angry with someone you call them an idiot have you done that you're a murderer you deserve death and so romans 2 4 are you going to show contempt for the riches of god's kindness his forbearance and his patience not realizing that god's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance our walk with God is supposed to be not God, us, other people. It's God and everybody. We're supposed to walk in line step by step with other people as we're being mutually transformed into his image bearers. We can't do that if we're lording it other, over other people. The reason for this, remember what Gary said power is last week? Does anyone remember what you what word we get um, from the same Greek word for power? Yeah, dynamos, dynamite. See, the problem with our power is we are unwieldy with it. We can throw some dynamite into people's lives and just leave destruction and chaos and burning and smolder and say, you're welcome, and then walk away. But God's power is not chaotic or unruly. With, when God uses his dynamos, his power, he can make Mount Rushmore, right? Like he can use it in shapely ways that we are not trained in. And so this passage is so hard. I struggled all week with this passage because you can get at the end of the sermon a nice little image there of God on the throne, us and other people walking side by side. Um, we're supposed to be in lockstep, mutually transformed. But the reality is that it's actually really hard not to judge and not to condemn. And then it brings up questions like, well, are we really supposed to just give a free pass to people who are living in evil, wrong ways? Like, what are we supposed to do about people who are causing harm to others? Like, 
if you have answers, I'd love to hear them, by the way. <laughs> but um, Yeah, and, and something that kind of became really real and apparent for me as I was preparing this passage is how, how I actually can be judgmental of other people. And one of the things I was scared about was how are people going to judge me as I give this sermon? Am I going to not say the right things? Or am I going to say too much or too little? And so the main point I want us to get at, which has been on the screen a few times, but I haven't really talked about, is that we are all sinners and God's grace is big enough for our sins. And so it comes down to, are, is your grace going to be big enough for other people's? I feel very vulnerable, but hopefully the reflection questions will help you feel vulnerable too. Where have you failed to let God be Lord of your life? Um, what, what are the things that you have done where you have failed, that you failed to see how you've needed God to take control? Where are your anxieties? Where are your fears? Where are your worries? Meditate on that. Meditate on what it means that God's grace is big enough for your sins. And then think about someone you consider to be other. Who is someone that you think is outside the realm of God's love? And here's the hard part. This week, what is something you can do to begin walking alongside them towards God? How can you make the approach that you really believe God loves them and you're on a journey together? Not stepping in them towards them in condemnation, but in the belief that God rules over all. He knows what he's doing. Let their sins, you know, if he wants to deal with their sins, he will. But your job is just to keep walking towards God in faith and love with him. To find out more about Redemption Church, visit redemptionbristol.org.